Hello and welcome to the Book of Leaves podcast. My name is Cara Kearney and I am your host. Irish podcast where we interview people who are doing something good for the planet in any way shape or form hear their story and we get to take a leaf from their book or several to make our own way of living more eco-friendly and this episode I'm delighted to introduce to you Maeve Stone a fellow artist I absolutely loved having this chat and I can't wait for you to listen and before we get into that I just want to plug I guess a protest (laughs) if you can plug a protest that's happening this Friday the 11th of November and as we are probably all aware COP27 has begun in Egypt and this year uh, we're probably all just prepared for inaction and more talks and more exclusion of um, MAPA of indigenous communities of people who have done the least but are being impacted the most so it is really important that we keep pressure on governments and on the likes of coca-cola who are who are not well polluting this event they're sponsoring this event and polluting the planet at the same time the hypocrisy so if you want to have your say if you are free this friday the 11th of november if you're able to swap a shift and work to get it off or if you um can donate your lunch break if you're in dublin there will be a protest happening in Dublin meeting in Trinity College and marching to the doll there will be we'll be going up Grafton Street I think and the whole theme is time to act it is time to act so we are asking people to bring a clock bring a clock with you and make a clock if you like make a clock headpiece or dress up as like a grandfather clock have a bit of fun with it but you know protests and marches don't need to be you know a lot of people just you know kind of somber walking along make it make a few signs bring a few flags you'll never have too many flags and i will see you hopefully this friday the 11th of november at 12 o'clock is when we're when we're meeting in trinity that is the plugging for that done I am still contributing to the Climate Alarm Clock podcast, so you should check that out. Not just because I'm contributing, just because it's also very good. And yeah, let us get into this episode with Maeve. So there's a couple of things that I just want to flag. First off, the, uh, we all know what the climate is like these days. The day that we interviewed was extremely windy. We had a very windy day last week and... Um, I did go out and cycle in it. Shouldn't have done that. But prior to cycling, I interviewed Maeve, who is based in Clare. And you can actually hear the wind in the background. So it doesn't persist for the whole episode. But if you do hear that background noise and you're like, is someone trying to break into our house? The wind is, I guess, that's the wind. Um, And also, we do talk on a kind of more serious note about direct provision. And I know a lot of listeners here also from outside of Ireland, um, based in the US and elsewhere in the world. Hi. Um, If you don't know what direct provision is, it is based basically um, like a a holding centre of sorts. When people come seeking asylum in Ireland, they are held in direct provision centres. Like for any amount of time, usually it's multiple years. There are people who've been in direct provision for up to 14 years, you know, waiting for papers to be processed and to be granted some kind of, you know, opportunities to work and earn a wage and contribute to society and get an education and whatnot. And uh, they are there. They live in horrible conditions. There is people who literally make money off of this, who are get, who get paid lots to supply the building to be used for direct provision. And then they're 
people are being fed on a bread roll covered in tomato sauce for dinner. There's been reports of cockroaches and infestations of all sorts. They were uh, they were death traps during COVID. Um, and the mental health of people in these provision centres is so dire that um, unfortunately there are frequent cases of suicide as there have been recently. Um, so direct provision centres are something that we talk about and I just wanted to kind of explain what it is and why, you know, Maeve is obviously, this is one of the things that Maeve is an activist about. Um, as are many people in Ireland so there are many direct provision action groups that you should check out and uh, it is something that we should end it is shameful that it still exists so um, yeah I just wanted to highlight that before we get into it just in case anyone wasn't clear on what direct provision was or is um, it is still ongoing so as much support to end that as possible is needed and I really hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did because Maeve had so many nuggets of wisdoms to share. Nuggets of wisdoms? That's not very wise, Cara, but she had so many just lovely perceptions and um, yeah, I really just love this chat. So I hope you enjoy it as well. Um, I tried to like whittle it down, but there was just too much gold in here. So I know it's a nice hour long listen. And uh, if you do enjoy it as well yourself, this podcast or this episode, please do recommend it to a friend. It is one of the biggest ways, second to internet searches that podcasts are found or listened to by people is by recommending them. So if you have someone in your life that you think, you know what, might like an eco-friendly podcast or this kind of uh, format or whatever, please do recommend it to them, send it on to them and as always if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts that would be super helpful and on Spotify they now have an option to tap a little five star option there you can do that it literally takes two seconds and if you have the the opportunity or the resources I should say to um, donate financially to the running of the podcast to the various hosting fees that would be amazing I'd be so grateful I do have a Patreon account patreon.com forward slash book of leaves thank you to my patrons and I also to have a once-off subscription model um, on buymeacoffee.com okay that is everything here is Maeve enjoy and I will talk to you after my name is Maeve Stone I'm a theatre and film artist um, I write and direct and I also am an activist Amazing. And you are an activist for a couple of different things from feminism to uh, climate. But what were your specific inspirations, if any, that led you down a path of activism? Well, I think it it began for me sort of maybe it's coming up on 10 years ago, I suppose. Um, And there was a few conversations that happened very organically in the theatre community. One was the conversation around representation of women. And um, I guess that stoked what became Waking the Feminists. Um, and that being involved in that conversation and, and engaged in that as a movement really gave me confidence um, at an individual level to feel like, you know, stepping into political conversations was something that I could do. And I think that's a really important moment, I suppose, for anyone who is thinking about a, a problem or something they care deeply about. It's often the moment where you find people who care about it as well and you can feel solidarity and supported in a community. 
So Waking the Feminists sort of brought me to become very uh, active within the repeal movement. And at the same time, I was learning more and more about Ireland's response to the refugee crisis. Um, And back in 2014, not a whole lot was known uh, at a public level about direct provision or about the way that the Irish government was responding to kind of asylum seekers arriving in the country. You know, we had the direct provision system for over a decade at that point, but it wasn't commonly known. Um, Yeah, people weren't as aware of it as they are now, even though we still need more awareness. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it, I don't think, back then at all. Like the centres themselves are kind of hidden in plain sight. And the thing that really kind of lit the fire for me in in thinking about direct provision as our generation's uh, Magdalen uh, sort of shame and um, political kind of embarrassment and, and a representation of how our country lacks humanity at times was seeing how language was used to keep it invisible and the sort of the very intentional ways that the systems that we're complicit in um, by not challenging them, uh, we're helping to hide people suffering in a really, uh, in really public places. Like there was direct provision centres, and there still are all over the country. Um, and oftentimes, people would walk past them and not know that they were there, and not realise the experiences that people in them are going through. So, the more I learned about it, the more. Uh, important it felt to do something and I was very lucky to know two other women uh, working in theatre who were feeling the same way and I guess this kind of brought us into the summer of 2015 which if you remember was the height of the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean there was over 5,000 lives lost in the crossings that summer so it became really intensified, I suppose, in, in how I was thinking and what I was thinking about. And um, Una Murphy, who's another theatre director, and Moira Brady-Averill, who's um, no longer with us, but she was a performer and comedian. Um, we formed a collective called Change of Address um, and started to think practically about how the access that we have as artists to funding, to platforms, to microphones, you know, how we could open up those places for um, people in the asylum community. And I guess the intention underpinning all of the work that we did with Change Redress was connecting asylum seekers and artists and seeing what would come um, through those connections. So uh, I think there is a very natural progress maybe if you can use that word, um, from the asylum um, seeker kind of situation in Ireland and the refugee crisis into thinking about climate change because the the kind of the correlation between the two is so uh, vast and apparent. Um, we were deeply naive when we began, and I think that actually was an advantage. I think sometimes you can worry yourself into not doing anything. So we were full of enthusiasm and um, absolutely lacking in any experience. (laughs) Uh, But we jumped in and I think um, the thing that we learned very quickly and maybe was sort of drawing on experience from working in theatre, which is quite a collaborative space to begin with, was that the only meaningful engagement was going to happen through listening. So I don't think we ever made anything that was building on something we'd made before. We didn't do the same thing twice, <laughs> which, which I think for some people would be like it is. It's probably a little bit mental, um, but it, it had to. It had to be responsive, and because we were, were working with different kinds of people in different settings, 
um, the things they were interested in, things they wanted and things they needed were always going to be different. So the outcomes were just like completely wild um, wow. yeah. and, uh, and always something new. Um, but it meant that we were always growing as well from our mistakes and also our successes. I would say just to give a few examples, maybe um, one project paired asylum seekers with a creative background or a background in creative thinking uh, with somebody in an Irish setting with an, an equivalent or complementary profession and it paired them in conversations over a month and then they were a part of a uh, sort of a presentation at the science gallery called Practice and Peril and uh, and that was really interesting because I guess Often the asylum system can dehumanize people. And one of the first things that happens in Ireland where, you know, the right to work was only, you know, given to the community a few years ago. And before that, they weren't allowed to work at all. The separation and the distance that's created between you as an individual and the thing that you care about as your profession and the thing that you have skills in. So it was a really interesting thing to sort of see the relationships that kind of sparked. And Moira always had a beautiful way of describing what we did as trying to formalize friendships. Um, and I think that's a good example of that one. The biggest piece or project that we um, kind of at a creative level worked on took, I think, about three years really of relationship building um, within the LGBT asylum community. And we set up a peer-to-peer -peer support network for asylum seekers across the country, which was a collaboration with the Irish Refugee Council. And the, the kind of friendships that were established there um, led to a performance that was in uh, a festival that ran during the St. Patrick's Festival that This Is Pop Baby were commissioned oh, uh, to make called Mouth of a Shark. And it was a musical song cycle uh, where half of the songs were based on testimony from asylum seekers arriving in Ireland now seeking protection because of their sexuality or gender. And half of the songs were testimony from Irish people who had fled the country in the 70s and 80s because being gay or you know having a um, another kind of sexuality just wasn't a safe thing in this country so it was really kind of gorgeous and all credit to, to Una for that idea um, it was a really important kind of moment for us I think as a collective and in, in solidifying how long it can take to do something like that where it needs to have really strong process foundations but that you can produce something that has a really affecting and high aesthetic kind of impact at a creative level as well and um, yeah that's amazing and that would be that would absolutely fall under um a term I've been throwing around the place loads at uh, festivals this year called artivism you, we have some examples there but how would you how would you describe artivism yourself and I know those are some examples that you've just done and then if you've any others I'd love to hear them I love artivism like examples yeah <laughs> I love this question because it, it lets me use one of those like stupidly fancy words that you never get to use in real life, which is portmanteau. Um, portmanteau. A, port, a portmanteau. So portmanteau is where you squash two words together. Oh, <laughs> so, this, look, I just learned something new today. Thanks. 
I mean, I don't think anybody is in the dark about what two words are going into artivism. But I think um, in terms of a definition at a practical level, uh, all art for me is political. So um, if you have somebody who's kind of working as an activist alongside of creative practice, often the output will sort of sit in that territory. Um, and I think especially if the activism is focused on uh, a particular idea or, a, yeah, a kind of political agenda, you'll see it sort of strengthened across the creative work that they're making. But I think it's interesting. It's, it's such a vital conversation and it's one that's growing and growing and growing, which I'm so delighted to see. And it seems to me um, to reflect the fact that, you know, artists at a very kind of primary level are storytellers. We're always attempting to distill or refract or reconstitute something of the human experience in a way that will reach an audience and generate a response. And, you know, kind of I think the the real alchemy of beautiful art is the ability to tell a story in an incredibly simple way that also unifies us all, you know, as a species and in, at an interspecies level as well. Some of the most important art that I've come across doesn't exclude the living world uh, mm-hmm. as as a living kind of. I don't know. I don't know how to finish that sentence. It doesn't. It doesn't like dif- differentiate. You know, just uh, this only affects humans or whatever. There's a lot of artivism examples where uh, the art is uh, coming from perhaps an animal's perspective or is making you see nature in a different way or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, there's no, there's no boundaries necessarily. You said it so much better than I think I would have. <laughs> um, but the, I was thinking about that question of what examples I would give, and I think. Um, I'm going to give an honest answer about the one that's affected me the most and the one that I think I come back to a lot when I'm trying to begin conversations with people about this kind of intersection of art and science and climate. Um, And it's uh, a piece that was in COP21 in Paris, and it was made by Olafur Eliasson and Minik Rosing. And it was called Ice Watch. And they essentially, they transported 12... Uh, icebergs uh, from Norway to Paris and they arranged them outside the building where politicians were meeting to negotiate the Paris Agreement. Um, And so over the, the, I think it was two week period where people were attending those meetings, they were walking past these giant lumps of ice as they were melting and melting and melting. And and I think that that's a, a really impactful piece of work because it operates on so many levels. <laughs> you know, it was arranged as a clock. The ice itself was always going to melt over time. It kind of uh, expresses the pressure of the impact on the natural world that we see escalating um, at a, a speed that's far greater than, you know, for us in the Western world are feeling at a on a daily basis. Mind you, if you were able to see outside my window right now, <laughs> it's um, very intense weather oh, today. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think Ice Watch was a really beautiful example of the impact that art can have when when it gets close to politics as well you know you know there was people had to walk past it every single day as they went into the nose negotiate the the terms of the paris agreement and obviously that's the 
the space in which the 1.5 targets emerged. But I think the conclusion at the end of that meeting was that the ambition was a lot greater than people were expecting going into it. And I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, <laughs> you can't say that's all due to that one piece of art. But I think there are conversations that can happen at, at an emotional level or even an unconscious impact um, when it's when it's art. Uh, yeah, and I think that's really important. Definitely. And you said something earlier as well that I think uh, is quite interesting from an Irish standpoint as well. Like that, that piece sounds so amazing and I think I've seen pictures of it but about storytelling and how art can do that and can conject like congest like a report or a statistic and make it more digestible and for people to understand it or perhaps feel it you know you can read a a scary statistic and you know that's it's wrong or you feel a certain way about it but then when you actually feel it it's like whoa and you can react to it in a more human level or perhaps in the way that it needs to be reacted to but I think like I don't know what do you, what do you think about the effect that maybe Ireland has because we are a nation in which storytelling is like part of our DNA and our culture and I think that's something that like we could so use to our advantage between the like the net we have cast across the planet of people wanting to associate with our tiny little island and you know the groundbreaking repeal movement and our the first referendum in the world for equal marriage like and then we're brilliant storytellers I don't know have you any thoughts on like Ireland's specific role there I do (laughs) have thoughts I yeah no I agree and I think I mean I feel like what we've seen in the last 15 years in this country is a demonstration of how we can surprise ourselves um, about how quickly we could change and how how much the sort of the groundswell really leads that kind of ideological thinking in Ireland. Um, And I remember working on the repeal campaign, coming across a statistic around the critical tipping point for behavior um and it's 25 percent because you kind of you can sometimes you can step into a conversation about needing or wanting something really important to change at a social level and it can feel deeply overwhelming because you kind of you feel like well we need a hundred percent of we need yeah. literally everybody on board or then you know or it won't happen um but the reality is that the size of Ireland means that things can change really quickly. Um, And I think that the more connected, I suppose, we are as communities, the more powerful we become. And you can really see that through the likes of the marriage referendum and the repeal referendum. You know, when there's community buy-in and and a groundswell, you can reach that 25%. And that's the point at which, you know, the person who maybe wasn't thinking about this as an issue in their life or something that affects them directly starts to consider, you know, what the what the real meaning of it is and whether it's something that we want for for our country and for ourselves and for the communities that we're inside of. So um, the other thing that I think that is really uh, important in Ireland is uh, is our language. And there's a really beautiful book called Gaelgogus Ercoliacht um, or Irish and Ecologies by a guy called Michael Cronin and um and people have come across a lot of work by Moncal McGann. Um, 32 Words for Field is a really good example. And it's 
it's basically, uh, I guess, tapping into what you mentioned on that sort of rich cultural heritage um, of storytelling. I mean, we had an oral tradition uh, of storytelling through Shana Keen, through our through our musical history. That means that Irish people have a really deeply embedded um, sense of place. And often it's through the Irish language as well. So, um, yeah, I think that there's more and more of a conversation maybe happening about how much we have to gain by reconnecting to the place that we're from and the nature we find in it and um, its own kind of unique uh, characteristics and what it offers us, but also what we offer it, you know, that there's kind of a give and take in all things (laughs) nature-based. And I think that that's exciting to see happening, you know, that there's more and more people trying to find out about like, you know, foraging or, you know, tree planting or what, what the thing is that really kind of lets them connect with the place that they're from and add value to it at a natural level. Yeah, that's so important. Seeing, I haven't heard of um, Michael Cronin before, but I'll definitely have to check that out. But uh, yeah, Mancon McGann's work and how like there are, you know, 32 words for a field, depending on the type of the field and the nature and the ecology of the field. Like the fact that we have kind of lost that um, in the English language is really sad, but there is like a big swell of people trying to to relearn Irish and re, like reconnect there which is which is really lovely and um, we could talk about Irish roots and that uh, all day but I know that you're also very passionate about inclusivity for everyone every every mm. person um yeah I was basically just wondering in your opinion how do you think that we can be a more inclusive climate movement big question big question <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Climate justice is a term I imagine everybody listening to this podcast has come across, but I think it's, you know, its importance can't really be underemphasized. The way I think about it is that we're at a point of deep uncertainty about the future. But one of the things that we do know with certainty is that the systems that we rely on on a daily basis across everything that we do will no longer be fit for purpose in the climate era as it evolves. And so the crossroads that we find ourselves at as a species comes with a deep potential for equity and inclusivity um, in a way that maybe we have never had since the Industrial Revolution just started the wheels turning at a pace that it's you know almost impossible to stop things. And I think you know, if we know for sure, we know with deep certainty that we need to redesign the systems that we use, we need to redesign the buildings that we use, we need to redesign every facet of our lives um, to be resilient in the future. The opportunity on the table is to make sure that we do it better than, you know, the one that we currently have. And I think that's really um, exciting from, from my point of view. I think, you know, one of the things that is leads me at a personal level and at an artistic level is the design in nature and you will never find a thriving ecology that doesn't have a density of diversity in species there's no such thing as a natural monoculture um, and I, I suppose one of the prompts in that maybe within how we organize as a species is to resist the monocultural pull of capitalism 
And the ways that we've learned to organize ourselves and to organize our capital and, you know, and the spaces that we occupy um, and to think more naturally about it and to think about, you know, where are the opportunities to increase that diversity? Where are the opportunities to um, open out and see where those interdependencies can develop? Because, yeah, I guess if you go into a forest system or a lake system or sort of a coastal system, you're going to see hundreds, if not thousands of species of plants and animals and microorganisms that are helping each other. And I think that's the thing that we cut ourselves off from when we think in a monocultural way. Um, We cut ourselves off from the potential help from you know all of these natural systems and 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 they want us to be a part of those systems as well you know but not in an extractive way which is the way that we've sort of evolved over time so i think that would be if you can translate that to the climate movement how can the climate movement become more inclusive it's to start sort of challenging our monocultural thinking um and that happens at every point you know in every conversation at a deep level it, it needs to permeate policy so like any political conversation any policy conversation needs to um consider how is this going to affect disabled people are they being given equal space at the table how's it going to affect people of color um uh, anyone from a minority like the traveler community are you know are we reaching those communities as equally as we are the other communities that we're kind of more uh, find it more easy to to access maybe um because the richer the table gets with diversity the better all outcomes become i believe yeah that's so true like it it is really exciting because i guess the capitalism system would have us think that if someone is coming in looking for something inclusion you know that that means less for us you know like it like it's a cake but more equal rights for you means you know less opportunities for me but that's absolutely not the case at all like we're stronger in diversity yeah that is really important and i think when it comes to conversations and policy like the one of the things I find boggling is when people are in a room making decisions about something that will affect a group of people and no one from that group is there to give insight which happens a lot so uh, it happens more often than it doesn't happen to be honest yeah and I like I mean if I can use this podcast as a soapbox I would be so thrilled to make more connections um with artists who identify as disabled or as uh, from a minority community I, I want to know you know if it's something that you're interested in that intersection of um of access and and climate I'm trying to I'm trying to find those sort of organic um connections at the moment you can always do better and find more so amazing yes please use this as a soapbox and I'll I'll link all your your contact details your and your socials and that so people can get in touch with you in the show note description um as well and it'll be on the podcast website but uh that's brilliant um and hopefully I look forward to seeing kind of what comes out of that and if I can ever help let me know and I would love to as well because you talk about a lot of the work that you do it's not just theatre and film you've got a couple of you artists can can end up going in you're we're just we're like um jelly like we'll end up just going into like every crack and crevice what's over here what can I make here I know there's loads of things that you have experience in from June 
jewelry to to writing um so I was wondering if you could like plug if well maybe you don't want to plug but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like the other kind of stuff that you've done like I know you have a book called how do we start that you worked with um with someone else it might not be a physical book is it an ebook or a physical book it is it's a publication um that Delicious. project art center commissioned and um yeah I think for you know Ireland we're we're quite far behind in in a lot of things to do with the climate and like yourself I think you know my impulse is to draw a starting line that's really inviting and friendly and try and you know entice and lure as many people towards it as possible so how do you start is five artists well, one of them is two artists working together. Kajal Modi, Katie Holton, Kasia Kaminska, Luke Casserly and uh, Shanna Mae Breen. And each of them worked on a piece that represents at some level the thing that kind of pulled them in. Um, and what's beautiful in it is how generous the work they offer is. So Kajal's has like a recipe for fermentation and her work looks at the idea of fermenting at a a symbolic level and kind of what it can teach us maybe about how culture works. And Kasha's has instructions for how to do an anthotype print, which is a kind of printing process which uses organic um, materials. So you're using an emulsion made from maybe spinach or parsley, and you can actually take, you know, uh, like a a print of a plant and expose it with sunlight. So there's a really gorgeous kind of range of ideas about I guess reconnecting or reframing nature or some something about our environment in a way that's going to stoke curiosity because for me that's been the biggest lever to pull for people is when you get people curious about something it stops feeling like like you were saying I have to give something up or there's a sacrifice here Mm -hmm. and it starts feeling like you know, you're a kid again and you're exploring the forest and finding really strange creatures and mushrooms. And the the part of our imagination that that lights up, I think, is innate in everybody. And if we can create contexts that offer people a moment to reconnect with that sort of natural curiosity, I I think in terms of the climate crisis, the biggest first step for anyone is education so curiosity is the sort of natural ramp into learning and so it's felt like a really joyful kind of way of of coming at things as well that's amazing and that just sounds like such a like it's so true like curiosity is such a good way to kind of like invite people in and yeah that publication sounds absolutely wonderful and people can buy that still I think on Project Art Centre I can leave a I can leave a link again if anyone would like to support that but you're a modeling now a very I'm going to presume by the look of them that looks like a Mavestone set of earrings do you how did you get into jewelry making I presume that's all eco as well I mean yes uh insofar as it's no waste it's zero waste and I make all of um, I do all the the packaging is hand printed because I I do lino prints as well, um, but you know it, so it's a it's a very small outfit called Stone Circle Jewelry um, that I started during the the sort of first lockdown um, and I confess like these are they're they're made from um, a material called polymer clay and it's essentially it's a plastic so you know 
like anybody in the environmental movement, uh, the things that I do also have a limit. Have an there. impact. Sure, yeah. of course. Yeah. Everyone has a has a an impact. It's the question and you know, there's no way of participating in our current society without having to make choices about the impact that you do have. So like I guess an example of how I work beyond the material is I source all the materials locally so in Ireland yeah like I say a no waste outfit (laughs) Uh, so it all gets reused and then the packaging that I use is all hand printed so I'm not kind of adding any outputs on that level but yeah it's not perfect and I think it's really important that people kind of hear that from from those of us who are working you know as activists Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect and it's really important for me to to keep working at it and mm-hmm. equally if we all imperfectly start moving in the right direction that's infinitely better than if I were to immediately like move into a mud hut and never use electricity again and you know <laughs> yeah. only eat shadows you know that there's that's that's been a, a source of power for me I suppose is recognizing the power of the collective and also that there's a really diminishing argument in oh well you're a hypocrite because you're you're having an impact on the environment. Of course I'm having an impact on the environment. I live in Ireland. Like I can't opt out yeah. of these structures and these systems. But it's more important to sort of be full of heart and hope and determination at a political level um, and to be opening up the conversation to people so that they can recognize a space that they might be able to occupy as well. So, And the other thing I found with it as well is that once you forgive yourself (laughs) for all the things that you're not doing perfectly, it makes it so much easier to take a little step forward with all of it, you know? So So true. Like, like for, And I'm sure you've felt this as well with the veganism. Like the first stop on the route to veganism is vegetarianism. So like, you know, somebody might be struggling with the food thing and thinking well like there's no way in hell I can I can be a vegetarian like it's just not going to happen but if you shift how you're thinking about it away from the idea of absolutes and towards okay well you know maybe I could eat more vegetarian food so that I'm having like three nights a week without any meat or whatever the thing is once you once you give yourself a space you can win in and succeed in the next gate appears and you say, okay, well, I'm eating veggie three nights a week. So maybe we can get to five. And then, you know, three years down the line, you're eating vegan cheese and having a great time. So yeah, stuff has been a beautiful escape for me at a sort of practical maker level. I've always made jewelry since I was, I think I started making jewelry was about 13 or 14. No way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you could argue it was my first art form. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and would have always made it from like recycled jewelry that I would have scavenged from my mom or from uh, friends or whatever. Mm. Um, I went through a phase of making jewelry from Lego uh, wow. when I was a teenager. And so those skills, those kind of foundational skills were always there, but what changed, I suppose, with Stone Circle was I started to work with the polymer clay and it's such a it's such an open kind of medium. Like you can you can make anything with it and you can change color, you can change texture, you can change shape. It's a very forgiving material. And I think what it offered me was a way of reflecting 
the connection that I was um, finding solace in nature through. So like a lot of people, I think, you know, during the pandemic, it was kind of get out to the beach or, you know, go to the forest or whatever the thing was that you did to get out of the house was usually seeking out nature. And I just fell totally in love with Claire and, you know, was deep diving, following the curiosity. I was like learning about the jellyfish. I was learning about, you know, different mushroom species and how mycelium networks work with tree roots to create connections so that the trees can communicate with each other. And I guess the more I kind of stoked that curiosity, the more I, I wanted some way of expressing it. And so the the stone circle kind of template if I don't know that's the wrong word but like the way that I have done it is you know whatever is poking that curiosity for me whatever in nature is nourishing me will be the thing that I do the research for and then I start to design a collection of earrings that reflect um what I what I think is just like endlessly beautiful in that um, so beautiful that is lovely and people are obviously again you have a website are you still making jewelry now even though we're kind of like out of covid yeah i i hit a wall with it where i yeah. last year i was doing a collection a month which is fantastic because i'm obviously addicted to work or something <laughs> and um, so it gave me it gave me sort of a focus and also the thing i really really value with it is like i'm using my hands when i'm doing it so i like i'm not checking my phone i'm not on a screen um that there's mm. i don't know it just gives you like an instant dopamine hit because you're making you know you know kind of get yeah. Getting to the end of you know a very beautiful process so that was a bit of an intensive uh, sort of place for it um, and this year I've just limited it to seasonal collections so um, the autumn collection is up at the moment and there'll be one in uh, the next month or two um, for winter and I guess I need to get that out before the, the Christmas rush I'm gonna do the soapbox thing again and say do it. I um like shocking at the sort of promotion side of it Mm. Um, and I know that that's what's holding it back like the making the earrings thing for me is like pure bliss I would happily spend days at a time doing it and nothing else and but the the actually kind of you know marketing and selling thing I'm not great at so if there's anybody out there who loves (laughs) what I'm doing please get in touch because I'd be very happy to figure out some kind of like split I know because social media can just be there's it's endless like the work never stops you can always be making something and reels I have learned come to learn take so long to do and then there's all these Gen Z people with their like banging them out there oh my gosh I don't know how they do it so yeah maybe there's a Gen Z listener that's like I can do that I love Maeve's earrings amazing and you're so true when it comes to like actually just being creative like you don't necessarily need to have like a business head on you to do something like this a good very good friend of ours um, that I met you through Zoe Reynolds the legend it was working with her on a tour in Europe um, I used to watch her just sitting in the car we'd have like seven hour car journeys sometimes driving across Germany um, and she'd just be sitting there making stuff she inspired me that's how I learned knitting because she was knitting she was always had wires and making jewelry and stuff like that so yeah I just can't chat to Maeve without also saying hi Zoe <laughs> if she's yeah. listening yes I love it um, always add Zoe everyone needs a Zoe in their life I know that you've had conversations with people about this but the like the idea of repair 
um, and making as a sort of an offshoot of mindset shift around how we consume things uh, mm. is another example of how satisfying it is actually to be making these changes in your life and that it's not a sacrifice like knitting I mean it's not gonna be everybody's cup of tea but I love it and it's yeah. it sort of slows your brain down it's such a gorgeous thing to do and the thing that I found recently was I got a speed loom that lets me mend like the thing that our grandparents did without anyone you know feeling smug enough to look for like praise about it which is what <laughs> I'm currently doing and um, like darning your socks and fixing a hole and like I don't know you're a cyclist as well but I always get the holes you know the tie holes in my jeans I got my first yeah yeah, I have like a pair of vintage Levi's that now have a tie hole in them I'm like gosh darn it they lasted so long and now I have to like repair them yeah yeah I, I had exactly the same scenario of vintage Levi's got the tie hole and my little speed loom has like given them like a new lease of life so uh, and I'm so thrilled you know it's such a lovely thing and I love how my socks look when they have the different color of the patch and yeah Yeah. so I think I think I'm a big advocate of like learning things is always going to be satisfying and like being able to make things with your own hands is always going to be satisfying and this narrative that we're sold constantly um on every surface of everything we look at that you need to buy stuff um, you know, and it has to be new and yada, 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 is actually just like the reason they have to work so hard and put pump so much money into marketing things we don't need to us is because there's a deep level of satisfaction when you just resist that and you're kind of, you know, kind of working on it yourself. Yeah, they're like, they're selling us one version of happiness, um, afraid that we'll realize that it's way easier to get all these little nuggets of actual uh, genuine authentic longer lasting happiness so yeah absolutely and chemical it's dopamine man yeah, it's like literally chemical reaction for me when I make a thing you know and and that's not to be underemphasized like there's a real payoff in that. um so yeah I would see mending uh or or kind of making as as a really great tool especially if anybody's feeling climate despair um I think it's a really simple kind of thing that you can do when you're not feeling great mentally. Um, and it kind of, it certainly kicks me back on track sometimes. Big time. Absolutely. And I was going to ask you for some kind of general ego tips. I know like I could literally talk to you for hours. You need your own podcast, Maeve. Your own, uh, your own soapbox. <laughs> um, but are there any other, like mending is such a good one, but is there any other things that you'd love to, to share with people or their other tips in any capacity? Um, I think like find the thing that you're curious about that leads you back to nature is absolutely my number one recommendation because there's no sacrifice in it. There's only gain and it'll bring you to new places. It'll help you meet new people. Um, And I think that segues into the other thing that feels really vital, I suppose, is that we begin to reconnect as communities and start Mm -hmm. to understand the environment that we occupy at a very local level. So I think those are the two big things that I would encourage people towards. And yeah, just not to worry about not doing it right um, as a way of avoiding starting doing it at mm. all. You know, the starting line is right there. It's ready for you, you know, and it. I think a lot of people had a very instinctive return to some personal connection to nature that happened through COVID either, you know, a lot of people took up swimming in the sea, a lot of people started walking on a daily basis. And like I said, you know, 
when we were chatting earlier, I feel like the moment of pause actually taught us some really important things. And we're now back in the spin and the pressure is there and the distractions have all returned. And, you know, life is hard and there's other emergencies that are knocking on the door as well. So I think just to kind of realize, I suppose, that there's a kindness for yourself that will help you build resilience in this very troubling time um, in finding your way back to nature um, and finding your people in, in yes. the midst as well. Yeah, beautiful. Because we we charge each other's batteries like I can't uh, emphasize everything you've just said enough. So I uh, echo that completely. I'm loving this chat, but I know we have to kind of like wound down. Um, And there's a question that I'm I just love asking people because uh, especially artists, because there's a lot of art out there that's very dystopian and we're really good at painting a negative picture of the future. And Mm. with anything, we need to if you want anything, if you want, you know, to live a certain place or you want to have a certain job, the first thing you do is like know what that is. Imagine it and you like, oh, I'd love to live here. Mm. So when we're trying to build a future, we can't we I think, yeah, a lot of people find it difficult to go. I want a, you know, non climate change future. But what does that actually look like? So in the future, when everything has worked out the way it's inclusive, it's there's equity and equality, there's security in so many levels. What is one of your favorite things about the future? Oh, I love this question. And I think I think one of my favorite things about this future is how we have rerouted, I suppose, ourselves in the earth and taking the pressure off ourselves to be constantly growing and growing and growing um, as a species so that there's a calmness maybe in sort of the future that we're building where the things that matter are in abundance and the things that we have been sold as being important for I guess, since the Industrial Revolution, uh, no longer tempt us. Um, so all of our energy, all of our time goes into building real connections with the place around us and with the people we love. I love that about the future. More rooted, more connections. That's just brilliant. Um, okay, we're going to move on towards some random questions to close off because I, again, have a bajillion things that I want to ask people and not enough time in the day, but I am actually going to cheat because as an activist who has organized protests with the likes of, I, I never actually mentioned their name, Artists United Behind the Science, um, which is, uh, which is I often see your banner at various climate protests. I would love to actually cheat the random questions and ask you a, a specific one of what your favorite protest memory is. Now, it doesn't have to be climate. I know you've been involved with a lot, but are there any kind of that jump out to you? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, without a doubt, it's the school strike in 2019. And I think that day for me was such an important moment of solidarity with the youth strikers and also a promise to that generation that those of us in the generations above aren't willing to stand by and watch their future erode because, you know, the, the young people standing up on the on the platform that day and speaking are so full of passion and they're so mm. angry and they have every right to be. And I think it's easier for the generations above their parents are, you know, they're dealing with life and they're dealing with the day to day and they're dealing with the pressures 
that are very real for for anybody with a family or you know like all of us are dealing with a lot um but i think that this this sort of lie that we're told is that there's no time to engage and i think for me it was really important to be there and to make sure that the creative community is represented and uh, and our banner is a fabulous way of announcing that um, and i found a lot of inspiration in the fact that it was a very intergenerational uh, event like there was people from every generation and and you'll always find that at climate protests it's not just teenagers and that's another kind of excuse that we can hide ourselves behind you know it's a young person's concern yeah Uh, it's an existential concern (laughs) and it's a moral imperative like I think we've reached the point where to not act is your decision. Like that's you deciding how you're going to respond to the climate um, crisis. And there's so many opportunities. There's so many starting lines. Uh, you just need to choose the one that you're going to find the biggest engine for, the biggest connection to, um, and the people that you want to spend time with as well. Yeah. And then just take that path. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah, yeah. it was such a powerful day that day. Never forget it. Um, okay. Can you give me a letter of the alphabet? And I'm going to give you a question. And the answer does not need to be related to the letter. G G G. Where in the world would you would you teleport to first if you could teleport? Oh, that's a great question. I'd probably go to Mexico. I like. I feel like transatlantic flights may be a thing of the past for me. So I would love to go to South America or Vietnam. Like there's, there's just, I think our, our generation in particular, like have been incredibly privileged for travel. Like even my parents, like have only been to a fraction of the places that I've been lucky to go to. Yeah. Um, but it's, it definitely feels like there's been a, a tipping point now. And I guess we all know that flying less is a, a good idea and flute scam or whatever the the Swedish term for flight shame so for me that's kind of translated into I'm going to struggle with anything transatlantic and domestic or local more local flights I think for me have to be limited on a yearly basis I think you know I'm aiming for one a year um I'll fail cool well I mean yeah of course like you said it's not it's about trying imperfectly starting somewhere yeah and like I, you know, uh, I went to Gothenburg by train a few years ago. What I did not expect from that experience was how much of an adventure it was. It's kind of like, you know, when you're in London, you get on the tube and you just kind of go into a hole and then you come out of another hole and you miss all the bit in between. And yeah. I think what I didn't expect from like the the trans-Europe journey was the getting to see people in their daily lives like seeing you know oh this is what people in Brussels are going home looks like and this is what and just seeing like the landscape and seeing like their infrastructure I mean obviously I'm a bit of a and like a nosy asshole or something. I was just so curious about everything. Yeah, people watching it so much fun though. Yeah, that's part of the culture. Like seeing how people actually, that's such a good point though with the comparing the tube and, and flying. Like you actually get to see the landscape changing and how people dress and how people commute, you know. It's completely different in Amsterdam to how it is in Germany. And um, so, yeah, that's that's really cool. 100%. And it's funny because I think for me, the only sort of meaningful equivalent would be traveling across Ireland. And so the parallel of the experience has really taught me something about my own country, <laughs> you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the amount of forests 
that you see crossing Europe, the amount of um, wind generation you see, like just at a very practical level, what we see on a daily basis in our own um, environment becomes normalized, even if it's not a good example of what could be happening. And I think our landscape has actually been denuded and, and eroded through farming practices um, for hundreds of years. And it's not just to do with industrialized um, dairy farming and, and cattle. It's, you know, Connemara and sheep farming. There should be forests across Connemara, but there aren't. And yeah. so there's this idea. Sometimes you need distance and perspective to be able to see things in your own home in a new way. <laughs> uh, and I think that journey for me, was was uh, really rich on many levels, and also you kind of get to you get to enjoy different cities that you're going through as well. And um, yeah, I think it's not going to be practical every time, and mm. time is, is the pressure. But um, it's an adventure for sure. Amazing! What a lovely note to end on. I love that so much, Maeve. Thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to? I'll link you know any handles or and websites and that in the show notes. But anything. Uh, any specific things that you want to plug or say how people can get in touch? Um, I guess I am hoping that, so I've been working as lead artist with Axis Ballymun. Um, they have been pioneering in the area of kind of green arts and set up a green arts department um, two years ago, along with sort of myself. And I really want that work to continue. And so I would encourage anybody that's interested in um, the intersection of art and, and climate uh, to have a look at Axis and to get in touch with Axis, or if you've got an idea that you want to pitch, please come to me there. Um, uh, yeah, so, and I guess through my own website, I'm available. There's a little contact box. So, yeah, it'd be lovely Amazing. to hear from Particularly any artists who identify as uh, being part of a minority community or disabled community and um, would love to hear from you and begin building up my network's diversity as well. Amazing. Hopefully you'll get a few people reach out to you and honestly could I really could continue to to you for so long but I know there's only so there's only so many minutes people will listen to a podcast for and um, but thank you so much Maeve and for all of the work that you do absolute legend thank you so much thanks Karen now didn't I tell you that was an enjoyable chat so I hope you guys got something out of that as well and just to flag um, there is a series of kind of online panel kind of talks no, less panel talks more kind of casual chats organised with the Axis Theatre in Ballymun also the Axis before I forget this Wednesday the 9th of November past interviewee Diane O'Connor has a show there called The Accidental Activist which is I'm sure to be a good night so I'll be going along to that if anyone else um, is is in Dublin but I just wanted to plug that actually before I completely forgot but um, yeah so the Axis also do these kind of they're called Cop on Tay chats where they talk to artists about green arts and and uh, you know they have like youth activists and they have um, people from the energy sector lined up um, I took in one a while ago last year I think it was but yeah it's a lovely mixture of art meat and science and just chatting to people and fleshing out ideas and you know it's one of these things where what happens at COP when the people of power are chatting to each other is often like nothing results in nothing but what happens the chats that happen around cop and happen um outside cop are where like all the most amazing ideas are and you know mind shift can really happen and um, mind shift change and all that so yeah absolutely keep an eye out on the axis theater ballymun 
socials and stuff for updates there and I'll share any on my own socials as I find them Book of Leaves podcast you'll find it on all the socials and as well don't forget to get in touch with Maeve if you are a disabled artist or you're from an, uh, any kind of marginalised or minority community she is very very open and wants to be contacted so I will leave the kind of information to get in touch with Maeve I will link her website and that with the contact box in the show notes as well as is everything else that we've been talking about is listed there and uh, yeah if you have a hand at social media and it doesn't terrify you and you like what Maeve does with her beautiful jewellery you can also get in touch and see if you can offer your help there okay I've kept you guys for long enough thank you so much for listening don't forget to follow the podcast subscribe rate review it and if you can support it and share it with a friend and hopefully I will see you on Friday the 11th of November 2022 at 12 o'clock in Trinity for Time to Act COP27 climate protest with a couple of different groups. So yeah, I will hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good week. Bye.